to introduce Damien. Dr. Damien Hernandez joined as Associate Professor at East Bay's Neuroregeneration Research Group at CIRA in 2016, following the completion of his PhD at the University of Melbourne. With an interest in neurogeneration and Alzheimer's disease, he leads a team looking into organised modelling. This is where patient-derived stem cells are altered to become tissue cells of the eye and brain to help understand and uncover the underlying mechanisms of diseases and the roles that specific genes play. Please put your hands together and welcome Damien. Thank you very much, Shani. Thanks everyone for joining today at this stem cell research forum. I'm very pleased to see a full room and I'm very happy that everyone is here with some interest on stem cells for the eye. I just have to, to let you know that normally my boss, associate professor, Alice Pivet, is the one that hosts the event, but unfortunately she's on duty outside Victoria. Uh, so she's been traveling all this week and she couldn't come. I'm happy to host all of you. We have very interesting speakers today. We have three great speakers of stem cell uh, researchers, clinicians, talking about the advancing research and applications. So our first speaker will be Dr. Grace Litterwood. Uh, Dr. Grace Litterwood is from the University of Melbourne, and she graduated in 2010 with a Bachelor of Science. In 2011, she undertook honors year at the Peter Mac McCallum Cancer Institute before making the transition to the neuroscience in a year later. She recently graduated from her PhD with Associate Professor Alice Pivet in the Neurogeneration Group at Centre of Eye Research Australia. Her current research focuses on improving current stem cell models of neurodegenerative disease, including macular degeneration and Alzheimer's disease. Please give a welcome to Dr. Grace. talking to you about how we use stem cells to understand diseases that cause blindness. So our mission at the Centre for Eye Research Australia is to eliminate the major eye diseases that cause uh, vision loss and blindness and to reduce their impact on the community. And the current impact on the Australian community is, is quite large. This study that was conducted in 2009 found that more than 570,000 Australians over the age of 40 are afflicted by blindness. And we can see here that the major cause of blindness in the Australian population is age-related macular degeneration and also glaucoma and cataracts and 23% of other diseases are falling under that final number. So the burden is quite large and this encourages us to push ourselves and to try and develop better methods of researching these diseases. And in the neuroregeneration group, our work is concerned with developing better cellular models. So I guess a good place to start is what exactly is a cell? So our cells are the building blocks that make us human and make us functioning human beings. Inside every cell in our body is our DNA, which is our genetic material, and that DNA is unique to each one of you. In every single cell in your body, you have the exact same DNA. And your cells then form networks of cells, and this becomes what's known as a tissue, and tissues then form networks with each other to form organs, and this then forms our systems, so our nervous system, our digestive system, and this enables us to function as a human. 
So what are pluripotent stem cells? Well, pluripotency means the ability to give rise to any cell type in the human body. So a pluripotent stem cell is a cell that can not only self-renew, which means when it divides, it creates an exact copy of itself, but it can also, under the right circumstances, give rise to any cell type in the body, meaning it, it can become any cell type in the human body. In an adult human, we do not have any pluripotent stem cells within our bodies. So, there are two types of human pluripotent stem cells. The first that you may be most familiar with is human embryonic stem cells. These are cells that are taken from the inner cell mass of a structure called a blastocyst. A blastocyst is the product of a fertilised egg about five days post-fertilisation. It's a mass of about 50 cells, and the inner cell mass of that is the human embryonic stem cells. Excitingly, there's another class of human pluripotent stem cells that we're really interested in. And these are cells that we actually make in the lab. So we take tissue from patients, people like yourself, we take a little skin biopsy, and we grow those skin cells in the lab. And what we can then do, thanks to amazing science, is we can reprogram those cells back into a stem cell. And these are called induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs. The benefit of these cells is that we can take them from healthy patients and diseased patients and compare their cells side by side. And this starts to inform us of what the causes are of disease, so we can study disease in the lab. So together these are termed human pluripotent stem cells, or HPSCs. And as I mentioned, once we have these, we can then differentiate these into any cell type that we're interested in, in studying in the lab. So we can make eye cells, muscle <coughs> cells, neurons, bone cells, you name it. So here we have a video of some heart cells that we've made in the lab. So this is an image of some cells under the microscope. So these are cardiomyocytes. And as you can see, they're beating, which is what the, the heart is supposed to do. We can also make um, pluripotent stem cells into brain cells. So here we can see a mass of stem cells that have been differentiated into brain cells, which are called neurons. And these big, long projections that are coming out from that cell body are the axons, which transmit the electrical information in neurons. So obviously, at the Centre for Eye Research Australia, um, we're interested in diseases that affect the eye. And in the neurodegeneration group, we're interested in diseases that affect the retina. So the retina is quite a complex structure that's located at the back of the eye. It is a tissue that's constructed of multiple different cell types that are organised in layers. And its role is to receive light signals from the outside world, convert that light into an electrical signal, and then transmit that signal to the brain, to the visual cortex, where it's then converted into an image that enables us to see the world around us. So how it works, if we imagine that the, the front of the eye is at the top there, light actually travels all the way through the retina and it's absorbed in these cells at the bottom called the retinal pigment epithelium. Pigmented means it can absorb the light. We know that when we wear a black shirt under the sun, we get quite warm and that's because black absorbs light. So these cells absorb light and then the light sensing neurons known as the photoreceptors are able to receive that light signal and convert it into an electrical signal which is then able to be transmitted through these networks of neurons all the way to the retinal ganglion cells which carry that light signal to the brain. And if any of these cells are diseased or dysfunctional, it obviously puts a, a stop in this process of transmission of light to the brain and that means that patients will develop the symptoms of blindness. So in the neuroregeneration group, we've been focusing on methods to differentiate stem cells into these cell types that form the retina. 
So we've been able to successfully create or differentiate um, the retinal ganglion cells, which are the cells that are affected in glaucoma. We've been able to generate photoreceptors and the retinal pigment epithelium. And these are the cells that are affected in age-related macular degeneration and also a bunch of other retinopathies. And excitingly, we're also able to create these retinal organoids, which are three-dimensional structures that contain all of these different retinal cell types in an organised manner. So if we focused first on the retinal ganglion cells, the cells that are affected in glaucoma, as I mentioned, the, the role of these cells is to transmit that light signal from the eye all the way back to the visual cortex at the back of the head. And so they do this via super long axons. And so what we can see here is that these cells that we've differentiated in the lab have these beautiful long projections, which is what they require in order to carry that light signal to the brain. And so we use these cells to study we use these cells from healthy patients and diseased patients to start to look at what goes wrong with these cells in the diseased patients to start to inform us about what goes wrong in glaucoma and other diseases of the optic nerve. We can also make the retinal pigment epithelium, the layer at the very back of the eye. These are the cells that are affected and die in age-related macular degeneration. And so this is just an image of, of what macular degeneration looks like to a sufferer. Um, where they lose central vision because the RPE in the macular region of the retina are actually dying, and this is responsible for central vision. So here at the bottom, we have a colony of stem cells, which we're able to differentiate into these pigmented cells, and to the naked eye, they're actually black, which is what they need to be in order to absorb the light, and we can see this here on and panel A and B. And when they grow in a monolayer, they form a beautiful honeycomb structure, mosaic-like structure. And so we're interested in looking at these, both in diseased and healthy donors, to see what goes wrong with these cells in, in these diseases and other retinopathies. We're also able to make these three-dimensional retinal organoids. Um, and this has been a really exciting advancement in the last three years or so. The technology that really wasn't available before has kind of taken off and, and really boomed. So what these are is the stem cell that we then able to give the right instructions to become a self-organising little mini-retina. And so in these structures, we have all of the different cell types that form the retina. And the beauty of this is that we're able to then look at how these cells interact in a three-dimensional system. And it also means that we're able to isolate any cell type of interest that we want. So from here, we're actually able to isolate photoreceptors to study to see what goes wrong in diseases. So obviously, all of this, this kind of work takes a lot of, of hours. We spend a lot of time replacing the media to keep the cells happy. So the food that we give to the cells has to be replenished almost daily. So we're in the lab a lot sort of replenishing this. So my boss, of Associate Professor Elise Peabay, came up with the idea to replace us with a robot. <laughs> this is Pierre. He's our automated system. He's phenomenal. He's able to replace the mundane task that we used to have of changing media and enables us to get out into the lab and do the interesting experiments and start trying to make some progress in terms of finding out what goes wrong with disease. So <coughs> this is just a short video to show you um, Pierre in action. There's a robotic arm that comes in and takes the, the plates containing the cells, puts that down, sucks off the media, replaces it with some fresh stuff. And this not only enables us to go into the lab and do interesting experiments, but it means that we can scale up the number of samples that we can look at. So 
we can essentially handle hundreds of patient lines at any given time because now we have a robot to do that mundane task for us. So that's been really exciting for, for our group. If you require any more information about how stem cells are used for research, I can recommend these three websites. I'm sure Megan might have some suggestions in her talk about some other resources, but these are certainly three really good websites for more information. And I'd just like to thank everyone who was involved in, in all of the stem cell work at CIRA. Thanks for your attention. Thank you very much, Grace. This was an example of what we can do with basic science in stem cell research. <laughs> uh, we have a, a section for questions at the end, so if you have any questions for Grace, just write it down, and we will allocate some time at the end of the three speakers. Our second speaker is Sandra Staferi. Sandra Staferi is a clinical and research optoptist at the Centre of Our Research Australia. She has over 30 years of experience in pediatric ophthalmology, working at the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne. During this time, she has developed a unique role of retinoblastoma care coordinator for the Victoria and Tasmania region. She's active in retinoblastoma research through Centre of Our Research Australia, with a focus on raising awareness of the early signs of this devastating pediatric eye cancer. Sandra is an active member of the We See Hope, an international organization of global retinoblastoma awareness, as well as working with the International Society of Pediatric Oncology to improve early diagnosis of retinoblastoma in developing countries through Oceania. She is supported by the NHMRC uh, Postgraduate Scholarship, and Center has developed and evaluated an educational program for new parents to raise the awareness of early signs of pediatric eye disease in the hope of improving the late diagnosis of retinoblastoma. Please give a good welcome to Sarah. I'm really excited to be here today to talk to you a little bit about one of my passions. Luckily, Grace gave such a fantastic talk and explained stem cells to you because I'm a clinician. And for me, when I first heard about stem cells, it was the stuff of science fiction and I'm really excited by what stem cells research might actually mean for this rare eye cancer um, that I'm very passionate about um, and the hope that it might bring to children and families in the future. So retinoblastoma is the most commonly occurring eye cancer in children where the tumours can develop at any time from even before the baby's born to around five years of age. The timing is dictated by the maturity of the retinal cells when they stop dividing in the eye. It can affect one or both eyes and it is caused by mutations or a gene change in the RB1 gene. Now some of these mutations are what we call in your germline, so they're in every cell of the body. And when that happens, that can be inherited from a parent or it can be passed on to your children. It might arise in a child for the first time, so their parents may not have the disease, but during um, embryogenesis, and cell division, gene change, or spelling mistake, if you want to call it that, occurs for the very first time. And then they would then have the ability to pass that on to their children in the future. The other thing with germline mutations is you have a lifetime risk of developing other cancers through adolescence and even into adulthood. They're higher than the population risks. 
The other type of retinoblastoma is what we is caused by what we call somatic mutations. So this is a gene change that occurs in the retinal cell itself once embryogenesis is completed. And when that happens, that type of disease is not inherited by a parent from the parent and it's not passed on to the children. The important thing about retinoblastoma is that for a long time the disease is confined to the eye. Okay, and this gives us a unique opportunity to treat the disease and maybe save the eye, maybe save their vision, but our main goal is to save the child's life. Now what we can see here is there's a, a classification system of disease and in some children we will have very small peripheral tumours, some children it will be a little bit larger and in others it will be quite extensive disease. Once it's outside of the eye, retinoblastoma is very aggressive and fatal. We have a number of treatments that we can use depending on what stage of disease that the child has. And they may have extensive disease in one eye and less extensive disease in the other. They may have multiple tumours in one eye and one big tumour in the other. So we decide on a, a treatment regime for each child depending on how much disease they have. The good news is retinoblastoma is actually the most survivable of all paediatric cancers in a developed country. And the question is, how did we get there? To consider the history of retinoblastoma is actually quite interesting. I've been dying for an opportunity to talk about the history of retinoblastoma. And I thought this audience might enjoy this thing, so bear with me. So in 1809, James Wardrop was the first to really describe retinoblastoma in a way that we are still describing it now. And he recommended the treatment as removing the eye. The problem was that there was no anaesthetics. So once anaesthetics became available in the mid-1800s, then removal of the eye to treat the disease was an option. The other very important thing that happened around about the same time in 1851, Helmholtz developed or invented the ophthalmoscope. And that's an instrument by which we can look inside the eye to identify the disease in the case of retinoblastoma. So now we could treat it, we could see it when it was still in the eye. And the next perhaps crucial step was von Graef, who recommended that when they remove the eye, rather than just cutting the eyeball, you've got your eyeball and the nerve extending out of the eye, rather than cutting the nerve flush with the eyeball, that perhaps we should cut as long a length of optic nerve as we possibly can. Because when he was doing this operation, he saw part of the nerve looked grey, the bit that was exiting the eye looked grey, and then it started to look a healthy pink colour. So he thought, well, I'm going to cut where it's pink. And what he was actually doing was what we call now clear surgical margin. Because before when they were cutting it flush with the eyeball, they were still letting retinoblastoma cells out and the child would still succumb to the disease. But when he started excising a long length of optic nerve, the children started surviving. Now, the next thing, in the early 1820s, Lurch was the first to actually describe a family of four out of seven children all with this disease. And it was at that time that they started to think, well, maybe this is a bit hereditary. And certainly, once we had more survivors because of the technological advances of the 1850s, more families emerged, affected individuals who survived went on to have children. The clever thing was, ophthalmologists of the time thought, well, you know, maybe it's a good idea if we examine these children whilst they're very young, and perhaps we can identify the disease whilst the tumours are much smaller, which they did. 
But in doing that, they needed a different treatment other than removing the eye, because now they were perhaps able to save the eye and maybe even save vision. So radiation came about in the late 1800s and then it was used extensively through the 30s, 40s and even 50s. We now know that radiation in the treatment of retinoblastoma is, has quite significant side effects, so much so that we tend not to use radiation quite as much these days. War, you'll all agree with me, war is not good. But the one thing that happens with war, or during war times, is a lot of medical advances actually come out of these periods in, in our history. And in World War II, when they started using nitrogen mustard, it was because what was happening was the nitrogen mustard stopped cell division. Because cancer cells divide really rapidly all the time, nitrogen, they thought, well, maybe we can use nitrogen mustard as a treatment rather than to kill And it was um, used by 1953, the Wilmer Institute in the US, first reports where they used nitrogen mustard combined with radiotherapy in retinoblastoma and they were able to um, stop the disease from developing and the individual retained quite good vision, so six or nine, so you could still drive a car with that, which is fantastic. The problem is that the majority of children, between 85 to 90 percent of children, won't have a family history of retinoblastoma. And it's a whole other talk that I would have to give, you'd have to sit here for an hour, for me to talk about what we're doing at CIRA to try and diagnose these children a little bit earlier. But for the 10 to 15% of children who do have a family history, then we're able to screen them from very early on. As I said, even before birth, we use fetal MRI, so the mother, pregnant mother can have a fetal MRI, and we actually were the first to report three years, three years ago now, an infant who at 35 weeks in utero was identified as having disease in both eyes. And he was born the next day so we could start treating him. So quickly do these tumours um, divide and, and grow within the eye. And that was to try and save his eyes and his vision. Now children who don't have a family history of retinoblastoma, by and large, are having to have their eyes removed to treat the disease so that we can achieve that goal of saving their life. And that's because they're not presenting early enough. And as I said, that's my other research work. But children with a family history of disease, because we're screening them so quickly, so early and so regularly, we've only had to remove one eye out of 24 in the last 20 years. So early screening works and the treatments that have been developed over the last, say, 70 years, allow us to make great gains in terms of saving eyes and saving vision as well. The, in terms of saving vision, the one thing we can't control, we can control when we identify the disease, but we can't control where the disease arises. And when the disease arises in that very central area of, the, of your best vision, there isn't much we can do, but we can limit its extent. Treating children who have small tumours sounds good in theory, but it's actually a very arduous process. We can use focal therapies on very small tumours using laser or cryotherapy. And we can combine that with chemotherapy. And there's a standard chemo um, bank of drugs that we would use that over the years, uh, through trial and error, has been identified as being the worst, best way to treat this disease. You would be familiar with many of the side effects of chemotherapy because it's toxic. It's toxic not just to <coughs> cancer cells, but it's toxic to healthy cells. You'd be familiar with the hair loss and infections. But in children, 
when they're developing and we give them certain chemotherapy agents, they also lose their hearing at a time when their language is developing and that's quite a significant um, side effect that, that we would not find desirable, obviously. So I put it to you that with the prospect of stem cell research, maybe children with a family history of retinoblastoma are still driving new treatments. And is this a vision for the future? Mouse models, you'd be familiar perhaps that we often look to using animal models to understand disease. And as Grace very beautifully outlined, in a way that I could never explain, the fact that using stem cells, we, don't, we won't need the mouse models, we won't need the animal models anymore because we can model the actual disease in a dish. And that gives us this opportunity to then understand the disease better and perhaps try other treatments rather than testing treatments on humans. I've uh, already talked to you about removing um, a small skin sample, turning it into the fibroblasts, and then reprogramming it to become any cell type that we like. And so that's exactly what we've done at CIRA, is through my association with the Children's Hospital and families and their children with retinoblastoma, I enrolled four retinoblastoma adult survivors, each with different retinoblastoma 1 gene mutations. And using this stem cell technology, we've been able to try and replicate retinoblastoma in the dish. So if we have a human model, then maybe we will understand how retinoblastoma arises a little bit better, and maybe we'll even understand more why only some people develop the second cancers. Maybe we can test different chemotherapy agents. We won't need to be testing them on the children. We actually don't have time to be testing them on children because we can't get it wrong. So maybe we won't need the three current agents we use. Maybe different combinations would be better. And then there's also the hope of gene therapy. So in collecting these samples from the, the retinoblastoma survivors, they've been able to um, grow these stem cells and develop retinal cells and we're starting to be able to induce the, the tumour development in the retina and we're artificially inducing it. So then we've got something to test all these treatments on. It's a little bit like if you think when you might have a throat infection and you go to the doctor and you and you'll take a swab of the infection and they'll grow it in a dish and then they'll say, oh yes, this infection requires these antibiotics rather than having to go through three or four different types of antibiotics until you're cured. So familial retinoblastoma, very rare, but still informing the future for what I hope will be a, a future of promise. Maybe gene therapy is so far off the radar, but we have to start somewhere. It's taken us 200 years to get this far, but I'm sure that, that we will get there in the end. Thank you. Another example of clinical applications that we can do with stem cell research in very young patients. So far now we've listened to two local speakers from the Center of Research. Um, our third and last speaker is amazing inviting speaker from outside the Institute, Associate Professor Megan Monson. Over the course of 20 years of career in stem cell research, uh, Associate Professor Megan Monson has combined her scientific expertise that has been gained through working in academia and the industry with a deep understanding of the issues associated with stem cell research and its clinical translation. 
She has co-authored numerous educational resources for the public, health, and educational professionals, contributed to the development of policy at a domestic and international level. She is a member of several international multidisciplinary research teams, exploring impact of stem cell research, and regulatory provides advice and information to Australia patient advocacy groups and community members of the stem cell science and associated issues. Megan is uh, Deputy Director of the University of Melbourne Centre for Stem Cell Systems with the School of Biomedical Science and also is Head of the Ethics, Engagement and Policy Unit of the Australian Government-funded Stem Cells Australia Initiative. She has always been fascinated by technology and its impact on society and in addition to her career in stem cell science, she has worked over 10 years as an embryologist in Australian IVF clinics. In 2018, this year, she was awarded the Public Service Award from the International Society for Stem Cells Research, one of the most highly regarded societies in the world. In recognition of her public outrage of public policy advocacy in stem cell research and science. Please welcome Associate Professor Mia Martin. Because that's their power. So they, they have a risk of forming a tumour. 
So that's certainly not what you'd like to do. So you might actually harm the patient. So we're very carefully progressing and harnessing the power of these cells and progressing towards the clinic. So this group, from my perspective, the pioneers in the field, they did a lot of the work that they needed to do in the lab. They then went to animal studies and made sure that the cells appeared safe. And they then started to go to patients. So Douglas is one of the first two patients that was treated in this very early phase clinical trial. And as the title of this article says, the quote from him saying, I've been given back my sight. So he had vision deterioration in one eye, and after this intervention, he's absolutely delighted. And I think this is fantastic. But I, what I wanted to caution you about is that this is the outcome from the, the first clinical study. We want to know if Douglas's vision is retained six months later, six years later. We want to make sure that those, those cells we put back don't revert back and form a tumour. And he'll need to be managed and monitored for a very long time. But we need to start somewhere. And so I think it's fantastic that people are willing to volunteer and participate in clinical trials. And I'll come back to that point. So great news, wonderful news, but often a little exaggerated is, is I suppose, my perspective and my concern. And if you're suffering from macular degeneration, you probably want to go and find out about Rimsera and say, where is your clinical trial on macular degeneration? I want to volunteer. I want to be your guinea pig. And unfortunately, we're still at that very early stage where we're only, there's only a handful of these trials around the world. I hope that we'll have a, a trial here in Australia soon, but we don't at the moment. So what do you do? You've heard about the science. You've heard about the promise. You've had this diagnosis and deteriorated vision. What do you do? And unfortunately, a lot of people jump online and they search for help. And they'll find a website like this one, and uh, you probably can't read it, but I'll read a little bit of it to you. It says, Returning Hope, that's the name of the, the website. A little bit provocative and emotive for my liking. Um, bringing patients together with doctors who provide safe and effective stem cell therapies in Asia. Nothing wrong with that. We're all about connecting and networking and bringing patients together. The problem for me is that there are very few proven treatments using stem cells. What I just described for Douglas is the first sort of test case. We don't know it's going to work for everybody. We don't know it's going to work for Douglas in the long term. But these kind of companies are claiming success now. They actually don't even do the research. They don't even do the clinical trials. They're kind of bypassing <coughs> all of that and putting up their shingle and saying, come and see me now. And I think that's quite dangerous. So you'll also notice on this website, down on the left-hand column, there's a whole lot of black writing that's probably too small to read. But those dot points are lists of treatments that they say they, or conditions that they say they can treat. So up the top, we've got anti-aging, diabetes, hair restoration. And then it goes down to arthritis, brain injury, cerebral palsy, so a real A to Z list. What's missing on this list, which is what I often see in these clinics, is erectile dysfunction. That's another big ticket item, usually at the top. Um, there are no proven treatments. When it comes to using stem cells in the clinic, and we have used stem cells in the clinic for <coughs> decades, it's really only using bone marrow stem cells, so the stem cells in your bone marrow that make red blood cells and white blood cells and platelets, to help a patient make red blood cells, white blood cells and platelets. So you might be familiar with someone who's had a bone marrow transplant or maybe even a cord blood transplant for leukemia, for example. 
That's a proven application as part of our current medical best practice. But those stem cells, if you put them back into a patient, they can't form new cartilage. They, they're not programmed to do that. That's not what they do. So those other uses, we have to work out cleverer ways of using stem cells to kind of coax them to do the right thing at the right time. So unfortunately, from my perspective, these companies, I want to make it really clear, these are commercial companies who are selling these treatments, are effectively, in my eyes, selling hope. And they're almost co-opting and absorbing all this great work that people like Grace are doing in the lab and saying, oh, we're doing that too. No, often not. We actually doubt that there's even stem cells going back into the patients. And just to be clear, the patients who are having these treatments back, it's not like they rub the stem cells on the skin, they inject them. So they inject them into the vein, and even in for, for children with cerebral palsy, for example, they'll inject them into the fluid around the spinal cord or even directly into the brain. So these are cells that aren't prepared in a, in a really high-class facility, often just some kind of back lab in a small practice. So quite a concerning area that a lot of us have been trying to raise awareness about for a long time. Because from a community's perspective, why not? Why not have a go? Why not be a guinea pig? You know, you've got nothing to lose. So the clinics often offer the same treatment for a whole range of conditions. Now, in Grace's talk, you saw the complexity of the retina, right? You can see that if we're replacing the pigmented epithelial cells, which are the ones right down the bottom, that's very different to trying to replace those nerves that take the message or the light signal all the way to the back of the brain. You need a different strategy. But these clinics offer the same approach for all. It's like a one-stop magic shop, and you've got to ask questions. Now, as I mentioned, they don't do clinical research. They might use the rhetoric of clinical research, but they actually don't do proper studies. But what they do in lieu of having evidence from a clinical trial is that they put out patient testimonials. Now, I'm not saying that this lovely child hasn't had benefit from the intervention. Uh, I don't know. But what I am questioning is that the use of a video that's very static, that was taken maybe two weeks after the intervention, is that really a true representation of how the child is two years later? So I think it can be quite manipulated, and particularly when there's a, a trade involved, and it's, it's money, you're selling and buying this product, I think it's, it's open to a bit of exploitation. So selling of stem cells is big business. This is some work done by colleagues uh, in Australia and Japan, where they looked at websites from all around the world, uh, and they looked at stem cells, who, uh, websites were selling stem cells. And Unlike 10 years ago, it's not happening in far-flung countries with low regulation, low kind of government oversight. It's happening in countries where you think that there'd be higher standards. And so the darker the colour on this heat map, the more the clinics. So there's a little scoreboard down the bottom. The largest number of clinics offering unproven treatments are in the US. It's then India, Mexico, China, and Australia just scraping in on the scoreboard at number five with 19 clinics. Now, I was quite horrified back in 2011. This study was done in 2016. But I've known about the trade in stem cells in Australia for at least the last seven years. And in fact, we've now got about 70 clinics. About 20 of them are selling, you know, some kind of beauty product. But about 50 are doing some kind of quite invasive treatment. There's only a handful that offer eye interventions, vision uh, restoration, but for a lot of other conditions like arthritis, 
these treatments are being marketed now and often marketed as a replacement for conventional treatment like a knee replacement. So people are putting themselves at risk. And you might have been wondering as I'm speaking, why not have a go? You know, the science is promising, why not be a pioneer? Well, I'd like you to refer you to a story that's in the New York Times about three women in Florida. So these women had uh, age-related macular degeneration, so their vision loss was deteriorating. They probably heard about clinical trials like that one I told you about in London, and so they wanted to have a go. They still had enough vision that they could drive, but what happened was at least one of the women went online and searched and went to a clinical trials registry that's actually sponsored by the US government, you think was legitimate, and she found a clinical trial on there. So she went to this clinic in Florida and she had a treatment. All three women had the stem cells injected into both eyes on the same day, not by an ophthalmologist or a surgeon, by the nurse, I think, in the practice. They were all left blind. And this, this is a, a photograph of one of the backs of the eye. And can you see all those black splotches, all those dark splotches? That's blood and it's probably an indication that the retina was detached from the walks. Because of this intervention in itself, so the, the cells that were put back were actually taken from that, a lipoaspirate, zhushed on the same day, and then put back in. And in this procedure, the cells haven't grown into a tumour, but it's the procedure itself that's caused irreparable harm. So these things do come with risk, and I just want to be very aware of that. So alongside all of the great science that's happening, we want you to ask questions if you were thinking about it or encouraging your friends and family to ask questions. And we have a new resource that Stem Cells Australia put out with the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Ophthalmologists and there's a copy at the back for you. And it's just really some helpful questions to ask and some information about what stem cells are, just to reinforce the things you've heard about today. What are those safety concerns? what the evidence is and what you should look out for, I suppose, and what you should be aware of. So my final slide is just to summarise those warnings. And if you were contemplating stem cell interventions, or dare I say, any intervention that's unproven, it should be done in a clinical trial. You should try to participate in a clinical trial, or, or wait till a relevant and a well-constructed clinical trial is available. Be wary if the same treatment is offered for many different conditions. We know how complex the eye is, so one cellular therapy is not going to fit all applications. If a clinical trial is asking you to pay for it and pay in the order of ten to $60,000 per treatment, I'd be thinking twice. If they're using testimonials and not peer-reviewed publications, I'd be thinking twice. What we're seeing with a lot of these clinics is they're using the patient's own cells and they're saying, kind of, well, therefore they're safe. It's not like having cells from a fetus or from a donor where there's a risk of infection or the cells growing in, a, in the wrong way. It's from you anyway, so it's just a reallocation of the cells. It's not quite as simple as that. And I don't think I've shown you just even the injection itself can cause harm. So finally, if your doctor, particularly your specialist, doesn't know about a treatment, I think I'd be thinking twice. It probably is, is too good to be true. So I hope you found that helpful. And as Grace said, you can visit our website and find out more. And at the back of this sheet, there's also a lot of other websites that you might like to visit. Thanks so much.
was an amazing, sorry, an amazing example of how important it is to be informed about the, the clinical treatments with stem cells. So I think it's very important to, to hear me and Monty. So we have a few minutes for questions, and we're going to have a panel uh, to ask any questions. Please pop your hand up, and I'll come around with the microphone. Do you have any ideas when you try from the left might get into clinical trials, sort of phase one, phase two? In terms of transplantations, or, or any, any yeah, transplantation? Our aim is not for transplantations at this point in time. We use the stem cells to model the diseases, so this means that we can create and screen for drugs. That's kind of where we are at right now. Generally, clinical trials can take sort of from the discovery in the lab to a clinical trial can take anywhere from 10 to 15 years, to my understanding. And that's after you know, years of research and establishing proper methods prior to that discovery in the lab. So it's definitely a lengthy process. And I think Megan explained this really well. The, the risks are too high to make errors at clinical trial level. So much of the screening has to happen in the lab. And we have to test a lot of our theories models just to ensure that the system's the same before they even progress to patients. So it is slow. I know that it's, it's frustrating at times patients are waiting for you know, treatments and cures, but it has to be slow and it has to be rigorous to ensure that your safety is preserved.
I understood it was a treatment in Morpheus. Now you might correct me that it's not a treatment and it's still a trial. But don't we have a duty, you in particular and other clinicians here, to replicate that straight away here instead of waiting and waiting and waiting? I really say this as a patient, and I, I put that question to you. Thank you. So thanks for the question, and I, I certainly completely know where you're coming from and agree, and you know, I have my own different health issues myself that I grapple with. But I, I do think that it's not a treatment yet. It's not a treatment yet. It is a, still an investigation. It's still part of research and development. I do think we need to do more clinical trial here, and that's something that we're definitely trying to work out, how to do that, how to fund that. So I think that, that we need to have opportunities for Australians to participate in clinical research. And I can see that MACRA's generation will be the first, it should be one of the first ones we do. Other more complex conditions will be longer in that kind of development pipeline. But you're absolutely right, we need to have, it's a hollow warning to say beware of the charlatans when there's nothing else in its place. I'll just add something to that. Um, it's a bit of a double-edged sword.
and help you. If they provide a concierge service, you're picked up at the airport and taken to the hospital. And so they make it very, very easy for you. Uh, and and I, I can see why that's also very attractive, but it's also very predatory. So I think, yeah, I, I think it's a quite a concerning practice. And we're seeing a growing number of examples of social media where you're actually, even before you are, are directly contacting a clinic, there's a way on Facebook that they can find you based on your search. So I've had examples where uh, some, a young woman who had a terrible life-threatening condition was not even thinking about stem cells, or she was in a very peripheral sense. And yet, according to her brother, on Facebook she was sent targeted message, targeted advertising material, which changed her life. She wanted to mortgage her house and so. I'd like to know whether, um, being in my twilight years now, really, racing ahead of me a little bit. But could I leave as an organ donation part of my eyes to be researched when I'm no longer here? Is that going to be of any benefit in the long run? This question can be answered by Grace.
one more question. drugs 